fell asleep in church. History. All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Second Pot Podcast. I am Caleb Spiker here with Serena Wolf. And we hope that you are caffeinated and ready to have some conversations about Jesus and life and what is going on in the world. Let's do this. So I'm not excited. Oh, come on. Uh, today I am looking at a can of Rockstar Recovery lemonade lemonade flavor with other natural flavors. It uh, has about half as much caffeine as the stuff you brought us last week. Which so. is disappointing to me. Well, I mean, last week you were climbing up the walls by the time we were done, so. I was. I thought, <laughs> I thought moderation. Back down. Maybe wise. This does have a lot of vitamin B, though. Look at that. 100% of the uh, daily value of, you know, recommended for your vitamin D intake. <sighs> Only two grams of sugar. This is, that's, okay. What is T-A-U-R-I-N-E? Taurine. What, what is taurine? It is an essential amino acid. Okay, all right. I so, think. Uh, all right, so I just want to say up front that any flavor that coincides with the color yellow, I am generally not excited about, but to be fair, it can't be any worse than rainbow or what was that unicorn sparkle that I tried? So I mean it could be. It could be. Let's do this. All right. All right, smells it smells like lemonade. Well, and sugar lots of sugar. Yeah, it hits like lemonade, and then it just goes flat as a pancake. That's yeah. weird. Yeah. So it's not annoyingly flavored. It's not. It doesn't taste super sweet. Uh -oh. It's not like drinking candy. No. Hmm. It smells so bad. It's not carbonated. I thought it would be carbonated. I did too. But, hmm. and that was part of my problem. I'm like, carbonated lemonade? I don't know. Which I guess is just not Sprite. Not really. Yeah. Right. So I would I would say like basically what this tastes like is lemonade that's been in the refrigerator for about three weeks. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. So I mean like it's not terrible. Like I I I would I would probably on a normal day prefer this to last week's, um, just because last week's was very super sugary. sweet. It was super very sweet. sugary. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I tried a different flavor of bang on my own on Friday because I was going to the theological symposium and I uh, had a migraine and I was like, I'm still going. So I stopped and picked up some bang rosé rosé. Hmm. How'd it that turn out? It did not taste like rosé. It tasted like sugar water. Uh, and it got me through the drive and, and through symposium. My migraine was gone, baby gone hmm. i was awake well good but uh yeah so i okay so are we judging these on a scale of one to ten yeah yeah i think uh i would say this is a, a full two steps better than the bang from last week so i'm gonna give it a seven 
on the spectrum of drinks that I would choose to drink, here's the thing with Bang. It's like a treat, right? Like It's mm. like I need something sweet, but I do not want 500 calories and uh, an upset tummy. Mm-hmm. And I could do that. This this is nothing that I would choose to drink. Like I would rather drink just straight lemonade. I would too. That's true. But if I'm going to drink an energy drink, I'm g- I'm going to give this I'm going to give this a six. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, but I still haven't found. Have you climbed the highest mountain? No. Have you run through the fields? Well, to find my energy drink, to be with that energy drink, no, no, I haven't. You're right. It's it's okay. You'll get there. Yeah. You'll get there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I will continue to uh, consume this throughout the podcast because it has a little bit of an aftertaste. It does. Just yeah. A, just a smidge. So we'll we'll see what happens. 160 milligrams of caffeine. Let's go. All right. So, Pastor Caleb, what do we have this week in the mailbag? Oh, it is full. Yeah. Yeah. That's so exciting. we've we've uh, we've been picking like a question or two, and sometimes there have been weeks with several questions to come in. So we're gonna try and backfill. Uh, and answer some of these questions we've just not gotten to yet. And the first one uh, comes from uh, the beginning of the month. And the question is that in the February 28th sermon, there was a part that mentioned, because we've been feeling sad, we've justified hurting ourselves. And the question is, uh, could we clarify this? so that we are sure that it is not taken the wrong way in minimizing the impact of mental health disorders. Yeah. Yeah, that, man, this is, this is a hard thing about preaching, or I would imagine any writing or speaking where you're talking about emotion, right? Because in the back of your head, especially if you deal with um, mental health issues like depression or anxiety or uh, trauma, you're always like, how are people who deal with those things going to take that? So, so refresh us here. What what was the context again of the February twenty eighth sermon? So the February twenty eighth sermon um, was uh, looking at um, the passages in. Luke, uh, where, where Jesus is sad and grieving and, um, you're burping anyway. I can't believe it. There's no carbonation. I don't think it's the carbonation. I, uh, I think it's like the, uh, the churring <laughs> and the vitamin B. Well, anyway, so on February 20th, we were talking about spiritual poverty um, and sadness and how to, um, you know, operate in the midst of it. And and if I remember correctly, the, the context was saying that, you know, unlike what our culture has told us, 
that um, that you know we we are justified in doing whatever we feel like. That's not the way of the Christian. We are still required to do what is right, even when we don't feel like doing what is right. Mm-hmm. We are still required to be kind, even when we don't feel like being kind, both to ourselves and to others. Which, I mean, that isn't to say that there isn't a, a pretty tough conundrum there when you have a chemical desire for self-harm. Um. Yeah. So I, so I think that, um, you know, we hear in sermons what we're wrestling with. But a sermon isn't necessarily speaking about what we're wrestling with. Does that make sense? That makes tons of yeah. sense. Because here's, 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 uh, uh, here's the reality. I preach to me every week and hope that the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you too. Yeah. Um, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent. I, I know no other way. Um. I think some of this, though, stems from the fact that we don't have a good theology for, well, any illness, really, that we talk about. Um, this isn't just mental illness. This is, you know, how do you operate um, as a Christian if you do not have the same abilities that other Christians have physically? Or how do you operate as a Christian if you are um, facing some type of terminal illness? Yeah, I think that if we had a better theological grasp of those things, um, these types of questions would be easier, right? Like, oh. Well, and I don't think it's that we lack the resources, right? I mean, it's not like human life just became hard in the last 20 years. Oh, for sure. I mean, if anything, life's easier than it's ever been. But we do know, especially recently, that um, depression and anxiety has been on the rise. I think that's a short-term reaction to uh, the life in the pandemic, right? Well, and if we had the language to talk about it, my, I'm sure that depression and anxiety was off the charts in the 1930s and the 1910s, and probably uh, going back to, you know, my guess is that life in the United States, there's a whole lot of depression and anxiety in 1812. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. You know, my guess is that those who were living in Jerusalem in the year 70 had a whole lot of depression and anxiety about what was happening. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not, again, like while, while we have language to talk about it in a different way, I don't think we're talking about a brand new reality that is, you know, exclusive to the 20th and 21st centuries. But I do think that there are some things that are different about our lifestyles now that probably do bring out more instances of depression and anxiety. Now, I could be wrong, but 
if you think about our physical activity, right? Like or the lack not thereof. A, yes, lack thereof. We're not outside working. Um, community is completely different, right? Like or lack thereof. Lack thereof. <laughs> uh, so you know, especially during a time when we are only kind of connecting with people, like faces on a screen. Uh, when we rely so heavily on text messaging. Um, yeah, you know, for the most part, I think life in general is better and easier today than it ever has been. But I I think in this area, it this may be a, a thing, right? Like, it, it's possible that we are suffering more mental illnesses now just because of the our lifestyle. Well, and I wonder if it's it's a change, right? So, you know, there is a ton of research that shows that IQ drops when people are, you know, broken hungry. Mm-hmm. You know, it just it, it just does. Like if if we have like we have a certain threshold for anxiety before our ability to process information and make good decisions plummets. Right. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's it, it, how do you quantify the difference between, you know, 80% of people living meal to meal, you know, a thousand years ago in Europe and now when... There are very few people who are living meal to meal, but the um, there are a lot of plates spinning <laughs> that you know can can lead to anxiety in other ways. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, because our awareness of mental illness is higher now. And because we know that there are so many people suffering with anxiety and depression, right now when we hear about being sad, um, maybe we're more likely to, to go from, to make the jump from sadness as a normal human experience to depression, which is not a normal human experience. That's what makes it a mental illness, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, I mean, there you get into the question of, like, can we, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is like a, a bigger cultural question. We have, for whatever reason, the thought leaders in our culture have went from saying, you know, these abnormal things that happen within the human condition instead of pushing for them to be understood and appreciated and embraced, we've said, no, everything is normal, which I think is a real problem, right? Like, it, it, mm-hmm. it's a problem that the culture would disagree with you in saying depression isn't normal. Like, the culture at large would say, no, no, it is normal, because if, if it's not normal, then that means it's it's something that, because we, we're all, we have this broken picture of conflating normalcy mm-hmm. with morality, right? Or yep. normalcy with acceptability. Yeah. Um, when I think 
you know, what we are running into is a um, just a, a real lack of intellectual virtue around being able to say, you know, what there is a a list of things that are normal, normal being defined historically as you know eighty five percent of the population does these things or falls within these categories. Are you talking about a bell curve, perhaps, too? Like possibly. Possibly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, we have this, these, this whole range of what is normal. And as a culture, for some reason, we have said what is normal is therefore moral, which is simply not true. Yeah. It's not true. Right. Like like <laughs> it may be I mean, there are so many things that we look around and are normal, but do not line up with what is taught in the Bible. What is the way of Jesus? Yep. Um, you know, the the way that we tend to. Um, you know, I mean, just a, like the the statistics around like pornography viewership in this country, right? Like it is a normal thing, but is it a moral thing? No, it's incredibly objectifying. Yeah. Not healthy, not healthy. um, And likewise, it is incredibly abnormal to be generous, Mm -hmm. right? Like you look at, at the, the data and there are very few people who are, tithing to anything outside of themselves mm-hmm. whether that be the church you know their favorite um you know nonprofit, you know universities hospitals whatever like there are very few people who are giving 10 percent of their income to anyone right but you know it's it's what we are taught to do as part of understanding that we are at this uh, this continual dependency on God. It's 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 how we learn um, just how good God is by intentionally being ready to give away a portion of what we've been given. So here we have something that is abnormal but is clearly moral. Another thing that is clearly normal but is also immoral. And as a culture, we have lost the ability to say there are things that are abnormal but are fine and there are things that are normal but are not. Right. And because of that, what we've seen is this move in the culture to make everything normal because we want everyone to be able to do whatever they want. So whatever they do, that's normal. It's a normal thing for someone to do X, Y, and Z, even when, you know, 1% of the population wants to do X, Y, or Z, Yeah. which is by definition abnormal. So, um, related to mental illness, though, since that was kind of the the gist of the question, um, here's the thing. Like, uh, colds are common, but it is not normal for me to have a cold. Correct. If I get colds all the time, I'm going to the doctor because something is is wrong at a deeper level. Your immune system is shot. Yeah, um, I would say depression, as far as illness goes, is not uncommon, but there is a world of difference 
between depression and the normal human experience of feeling sadness. Many people experience depression. I have had bouts of depression since my teenage years. Like this, it's in my family. It's probably partially tied to my upbringing. I mean, when you're poor, right? When you're raised in a poor household, when there are um, less than ideal uh, parenting uh, uh, parenting tactics used, um, like I'm not surprised, right? But depression is not my normal mode, nor do I want it to be because it's painful. I don't want to have a cold all the time. I don't want to have depression all the time. Um, and so I feel for anyone dealing with depression and when you're depressed and you hear, you know, you can be sad without wanting to, to cause yourself harm, um, you may automatically go to suicide. Like no one chooses to think about suicide. Mm. Right. Um, but again, I don't, you know, it, when, when somebody who has bouts of depression is at their best, they can look at that and say, okay, you're not talking about depression. You're talking about sadness. And you're talking about how when we are hurt, we hurt others. You want to know what I was really talking about? Oh, yeah. Let's. So let's when I'm sad, I eat a whole package of Oreos. Oh, man. Oh, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. Sadness leads to incredible bloat and fat storage. I mean. <laughs> So I, I, I confess when I'm sad or, or uh, anxious, eating is my go-to. But I, I know people who drinking is your go-to. Mm-hmm. Um, where there have been times where if I'm sad or stuck in a rut, I pull out my phone and mindlessly play a game so that I don't have to deal with the reality around me. Yeah. Yeah. And that that is loosely tied to depression, right? Because people who are suffering from depression, you typically stop taking care of yourself. You stop engaging with others. You may have thoughts of self-harm, right? Like, and the problem is typically you don't even see it until you're in the middle of it. And even then somebody around you typically has to point it out to you. It's an illness. You are sick. That's not your fault. Um, but you want to get better, right? But yeah, yeah I, anyway. Do you, I feel like we just talked about a lot of things. I think you answered the question by saying, when I'm sad, I don't make good decisions for myself, and I don't have to live that way. I mean, I think that's, that's what it comes down to, right? Is, you know, so often, and I mean, I... Like, just this week, you know, like, I'm in Marysville. My grandmother has died. They're, like, people bring brownies and chocolate chip cookies. And, you know, yeah, I know that I don't need my seventh chocolate chip cookie in the last two hours. But by golly, I don't want to stop. Because I am sad about my grandma, so numb, numb, numb. Yeah. Now, By the way, I'm sorry, man. Oh, thank you. Um, but yeah, so it's like, how do we, you know, part of the, the victory over slavery to sin, slavery to death, is that we don't have to make 
these decisions that are tied up in what we are feeling. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the one of the uh, one of the things that I I've appreciated in you know this season of emotionally healthy spirituality and, and reading things on uh, from around um, is there is uh, a practice uh, called the Big Sky of the Mind that um, that says. Any feeling, any emotion, we need to remember that it is a cloud in the big sky of the mind. So when we are feeling sadness, that does not make us sad. We have sadness as a feeling, Mm -hmm. but it does not change our identity. We do not become sad people. Um, you know, I, and I think this is a, an important sort of shift in the way that we, we talk to ourselves, right? Like, instead of, um, and this is something we do with our kids, right? Like, when, you know, one of our kids runs up with their fists on their hips, I'm angry! Say, well, no, you are not an angry kid. You are experiencing anger about something your brother has done. But that doesn't make you angry. Like this is this is a shift that when we make it can make a huge difference. But we and we've already done that with mental illness though, right? When you're talking about extreme emotions that are hard to control that are out, you know, outliers on the bell curve like I understand that I may be experiencing depression, but I am not depressed. We're, uh, like, I, I, of course I'm depressed, but depression can't define me, hmm. right? Like, I'm not going to take that and say, that's not part of who, uh, it's not part of uh, what constitutes who I am, even though it influences me, right? Mm-hmm. It's something I deal with, but it's not, doesn't define me well and and, i mean i i I haven't read this specifically but my guess is that the people who advocate for this big sky of the mind thinking would say that yeah depression can be like fog rolling in like like you don't see anything else right Um, absolutely you know and it can be incredibly hard to get past like well depression to the left of me depression to the right of me you know yeah what else is there um but the fog does clear Mm-hmm. Christians live with hope. Uh, yeah. All right. Back to the mailbag. Asking for a friend. I if, love that. Asking for a friend. Yeah. If the Bible tells us that we can never predict the arrival of Christ, why do so many TV preachers do so? <laughs> because it makes good money. Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty. So I mean, so kind of the the bigger uh, issue that we are getting into. Um, there's a, a philosophy professor of the University of Arizona who has talked about the way grandstanding works in um, within culture, mm-hmm. and that it is on this rampant pace that we've never seen before because of mass communication. 
Um, so can you define grandstanding real quick for yeah. anyone who may not know? So the way the, the, the professor defined it, he's a really progressive guy. He said when he was in grad school, he prided himself on taking the most progressive position possible. And there was another guy in the grad school program with him who also prided himself on taking the most progressive position possible. So that before they even realized it, they had pushed the bounds mm. of how progressive a position could be to a place of near absurdity uh -huh. because each of them wanted to be on the edge. So it's like, oh, well, you think, uh, you think the pay gap is a problem? Well, I think we need to demand that women and men make the same amount of money. Well, I think we need to demand that women make more money. Well, I think we need to enslave men, right? Like, like it gets yeah, to this, yeah. this like crazy yeah. place on the edge. Um, so I think part of what we are seeing with the uh, desire to predict the end is this, you know, oh, well, John Hagee's doing it. Well, uh, I, I can do it too, and I can do it better. Uh-huh. I'm gonna uh -huh. pick a week before he does, right? Um, and and it doesn't hurt, and you are right that there is financial incentive oh, to, um, you know, to sell your doomsday kits alongside the uh, the prediction. Well, and this is not normal in Christian history either. I mean, this is a relatively modern thing. Um, yeah left behind that whole series big money also Huge. completely irresponsible handling of our sacred text holy cow if you are listening to this and you loved left behind great but understand that theologically it's nonsense i probably just made some people mad that's okay. Yeah, uh, it is okay. I, I, I watched the Kirk Cameron movies. I didn't read them, so I'll take your word for it. I read the books. Well, I read the first two books, and then um, had the other books. Some given to me. Some I bought just to maybe you know read them in the future. And I couldn't bring myself to do it. I wasn't going to give Kirk Cameron my money for a movie based on books that instill fear in people. Uh, there's no need. <laughs> so, funny, uh, funny Kirk Cameron line. So when I was a, uh, let's see, it would have been my junior year, like the summer between my junior and senior year of college. Um, for two weeks, I sold security systems in the Chicago suburbs. I was terrible at it because, you know, it was 2008. The bubble had just burst. It was a bunch of GM employees who were laid off, and I just couldn't bring myself to, like, like I knew they they didn't have the money for it, and it wasn't a good investment for them. So yeah. it was painful. So by, like, the fourth day in, I was just, like, walking in circles in these neighborhoods. Like, I couldn't even bring myself to knock on doors. You lived in Chicago or a suburb? For, like, Chicago? two weeks. Okay, okay. Um, it's a beautiful city. So, you know, I, I'm just making circles around this neighborhood, just 
feeling like trying to figure out what to do next with my life because it's like I can't do this anymore. You can't sell fear. Uh, no. <laughs> nope. Um, and uh, basically, the neighbors got anxious about me walking in their neighborhood. <laughs> you know. So, police officer pulls up to me. He's like, "Hey, what are you doing here?" I said, "Selling security systems, I guess." He goes, "Oh." Let me see your ID. So I give him my ID. He runs and he's like, well, you're cleaner than a Kirk Cameron movie. <laughs> as you were. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if you are going to, uh, you know, look shady, it's best to look shady with no record. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And what a great way to end up selling uh, security systems. Knock on the doors. Hey, do you know who I am? No? I've been walking around your neighborhood. I see your house. You want to buy, <laughs> buy a security system to keep me out? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, fear is a form of currency in, in the entertainment industry and in our society. Um I, I I think that we have this morbid fascination with um, revelation, not understanding that uh, the things that John wrote about were things that were happening at, at that time that keep happening. Um, we deny the existence of a spiritual world. And these things may very well be literally happening in the spiritual realm. Um, uh, yeah, man, go to church. Don't sit at home and watch a TV evangelist. Go to church. Go to church where you can sit in front of a pastor. And if they say something like Jesus is coming in 2022, on January 13th, you can pull them aside. You heard it here, folks. Pastor Trina has made the no, prediction. No, January. No, 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 no. But you can pull them aside and be like, what do you mean? How'd you come up with this? And if they start talking crazy, you can tell them you're talking crazy. You call the bishop. You can call the bishop if you're, if you're in the United preachers lost Memphis. their mind. They're, they're nuts. They... Uh, yeah, uh, there's money. I, I think it's money. I think it's money and mishandling, misunderstanding of the nature of scripture. And no accountability. They don't have anyone to answer to. Yeah, it tends not to be uh, pastors and connectional systems mm -hmm. that uh, make these outlandish claims. That's true. Yeah. So, another question from the mailbag. Why won't God heal amputees? Oh, that's a good question. It is. Why do we assume God won't heal amputees? Uh, that was my first thought. Um, you know, I, I remember being at a uh, conference a few years back where there was a, uh, a lady who had researched healing stories from around the globe. Mm. Um, and she said the most common healing practice in the developing world was around vision. Mm -hmm. Like the clearing up of, of you know, cloudy vision. Um, 
and she took off her spectacles and said, here we just get glasses. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, there, and I don't, I don't even know how to talk about this well, but, you know, I think there is a sense that in, um, in the developed West, a lot of God's healing has come through the advance of medicine. Absolutely. Um, which in some ways is really, really nice because it is at our fingertips. Um, but in many cases, I think it's developed uh, some hubris amongst us to think, well, you know, I don't need God to heal me because I have Dr. Patel or Dr. McConnell or whatever your doctor's name is. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, uh, so yeah, so I, I would, I would first say I'm not sure that God isn't healing amputees somewhere in the world. And by healing, we mean, you know, the question specifically, the regeneration of limbs. Yeah. Um, I am, I can't say for certain that that isn't happening somewhere. Um, and, you know, here I think a lot of the healing comes through, you know, the really excellent prosthetics that, that you know, we see, you know, in, in Western culture. Yeah. So, um, before we move on to probably the final question, um, I have had the opportunity to meet a gentleman by the name of Randy Clark. Now, I don't know him real well, right? Like, he's not my buddy. Um, he is a humble servant of God. I, I am rarely impressed by people. I don't tend to put people up on a pedestal. Uh, I was impressed with him. Like, he is... He's, I think he's the real deal. He's not showy. He doesn't talk fancy. Um, anyway, he has uh, healing ministries and travels frequently to Brazil. And he's there to proclaim the gospel. And he sees crazy miracles happening when he's in Brazil. One of which is, includes the regeneration of limbs. Now, <clears throat> that's well and good. Um, so I would say God does do those things. I also think the question here is, what's the point of healing? Hmm. Like, when Jesus healed people in Scripture, I mean, the, the, the disciples were commanded to heal the sick. Often those were illnesses that kept people from being in community. Um, I cannot speak to what it's like to be an amputee. I have all of my limbs. And I cannot imagine the struggle that people who lose a limb may face. But what I can say is that um, it doesn't keep you necessarily from community in our nation the way it may once have. 
Now, I'm not trying to say like, oh, it's not a big deal. That's that's not accurate. If that's a huge deal, um, but I think we need a better, a more robust theology of healing, right? Like I prayed for my friend's healing when my friend Jared uh, was diagnosed with brain cancer. I prayed for his healing, and when I prayed for his healing, I meant God take this brain cancer away. There's no way Jared's done on this earth. Hmm. Like he's got two little kids. He's got a wife. He's got all these friends. People love him. Don't let this happen. Um, he was never healed of brain cancer in the way I wanted him to be. But he didn't lose his faith. Um, he was still a blessing to people. He showed great courage. And uh, he's going to be resurrected. And I believe he is in the presence of God. So was there healing there? I think there probably was. But it wasn't healing. It wasn't the healing I was praying for. So. Yeah, I mean, you're right. There's, um, like, it, it does seem to be that, um, like, we tend to fall in the ditches, right? It's either, like, pure cessationism, you know, God doesn't do anything anymore, like stop asking, um, or you know, kind of this, like uh, prosperity. You know, if it's not happening, it's your problem. You don't have enough faith. Nonsense, right? Where or if it's not happening, there is no God. That's my other favorite. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's like that. That's a helpful, insightful piece. This idea that. You know, healing is for the benefit of welcoming people into the community of faith who are excluded because of, you know, this this thing going on. Well, and healing is, is a sign of the kingdom, and mm. wholeness comes in many ways. An amputee may be healed, not by having a limb regenerated, but by learning how to live with their body in such a way that they can function and realize their full humanity without that missing limb. Mm. Like, that may be what healing looks like for that person. And that is a, that is a great act of God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, final question from the mailbag. All right, let's do this. One more. Some elements of Christianity appear to be based upon other religions, even paganism. For example, could you explain the Epic of Gilgamesh as it compares to the creation story and flood story in the Bible? I love this question. I actually tried to answer this question a couple of weeks ago, and I edited it, edited it, edited it out. Um, a, because the podcast was going to be a little long for my liking, and B, because I was sick of hearing myself talk. Do mm. you want to take this? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean, I'm, so I'm, I mean, the, the, the short answer is you think the Epic of Gilgamesh sounds a lot like uh, the creation flood story. Go back and read the Enuma Elish, you know, which was, you know, 2,000 years older. All right. So uh, first, here's, here's the way I was thinking about this. Um, first, I think that there probably was some catastrophe that ancient people were trying to make sense of. All right. Um, and ancient people, wait. Uh, Wasn't I? 
Gilgamesh, this is, that wasn't the, no, that's creation and the flood. Both are in there. Yes. Okay. So catastrophe that ancient people are trying to make sense of. And um, ancient people also, much like we today, were trying to answer the question of why we're here. How did we get here? What is life about? So here's the deal. It's not that Christianity copied paganism. It's that both, or not Christianity, good Lord help me. Judaism. Judaism, I know, I know. I was just being dumb. It, <laughs> okay, ancient reality, or ancient <clears throat> religions did not exist in a vacuum. One did not copy another as much as they existed at the same time, in the same locations, and all people were trying to answer the same general questions about life, which is still true today. I think, though, what we miss is um, what these ancient religions and writings say about the gods that people worshipped. So one narrative about um, how we got here is that we were created by gods because the gods had work to do and they didn't want to do it, so they made human beings to do the work for them. Right? And this is why humans uh, bring food and things like that to the altars of the gods, because you feed the god. Um, that is not the story of the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nope. We were created out of an overflowing of love. That's very different. Um, well, I mean, the Enuma Elish, the... It, the um, the creation of the world came when, um, you know, some uh, some less powerful gods decided to team up on the most powerful god, mm-hmm. and when they sliced her in the middle, creation burst forth out of her intestines. It's mm. a beautiful picture, isn't it? Though, um, so yeah, I mean, for a lot of these ancient cultures, the the creation narrative comes out of conflict. You know, creation is a matter of conflict resolution. Yeah. Whereas for Judaism and Christianity, it is God is existing, you know, for Christians in Trinity um, and desires to have humans that will know God. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And, and I mean, this gets into a bigger question of what is mythology? Um. The book of Genesis is mythology. Now, mythology does not mean false. Mythology does not mean fiction, as we may be in the habit of thinking in terms of, like, Greek mythology, right? Like, for ancient peoples, mythology is not fiction. It's not false. It is how things really are. Yeah. It is a description of the why the world is the way it is. So for, um, you know, Babylonians, the world is the way it is because of conflict in the heavenly realm. Like creation is a, <laughs> is, you know, the causal response of this fighting. Um, for Christians, for Jews, uh, for you know, all of us coming out of this 
Abrahamic tradition. Christianity, or the creation is because God desired something to know and to be known by. Um, and creation is good. And creation is good. It's not accidental. It's intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you look at at how, you know, the, the book of Genesis sets Christianity apart from the other religions in the area. Judaism. Sets Judaism <laughs> apart from, thank you. We, now I feel better. We yeah. both we both did it. Okay. Hey, it's going to be one of those days, I'm afraid. Uh, yeah. um, <clears throat> you know, you have you have narrative storytelling that describes why our religion is different from theirs. Why don't we sacrifice our children the way our neighbors do? Well, I'll tell you why. Because when God, when Abraham took Isaac up to do this thing that all of our neighbors do, God said, stop it. That's not the kind of God I am. Yeah. God yeah. said, I provide the sacrifice for you. Like, which exactly. is amazing. So, you know, it's um, first and foremost, we have to understand that the Bible is theology. It's not first and foremost history. It's not first and foremost science. It's first and foremost theology. It is about teaching us how God is, who God is, why God has shaped the world in the way that we find it. Um, which is, you know, it, it doesn't jive real cleanly with um, our assumptions about the way knowledge works post-enlightenment. Um, Genesis is not fan fiction. I don't know what that means, but... Okay, so you have... So, sorry, I was thinking about this. Okay. Um, so you have other ancient writings that tell creation stories and uh, stories of catastrophe. Today, we have stories. We have superhero stories. These are a big myth in our, in our current culture. And here's the thing. We know that superhero stories aren't real, and yet superhero stories are incredibly real, right? Like, there, are, there is deep truth. Now, we can get into that in a different podcast, but uh, people fans of these stories or Harry Potter or, oh gosh, the Twilight series. Which gave us 50 shades of gray. Exactly. Wow, chicka, wow, wow. Nothing good comes out (laughs) of the Twilight series. It's an abusive relationship. It's a sparkly vampire. That makes me ill. Anyway, but fans. I mean, it is kind of weird that he's like 170 and into this 15-year-old you know. Well, that isn't what weirds me out, because a vampire uh, is a creature that lives forever, and they're going to be attracted to life and youth. This makes sense to me, because they want to consume that life and that youth. I'm down with that. That's not outside the realm of vampire lore. <sighs> a vampire that, that tries to eat vegetables instead of drinking blood, this bothers me. Uh, anyway, 
because there's deep truth in, a vam- in vampire lore about the nature of human beings and the nature of life and death. Anyway, there's fan fiction. There are people who write stories about, God help them, Twilight for some reason, and about these characters. And that is copying the work of another person and adapting it for your own story, right? Okay, that's not what Genesis is. Genesis is not the adaptation of other myths. Genesis is in conversation with the ancient world and the people around them and the understanding and the questions they're facing, right? So I think that a couple of things, we, we miss the boat in comparative religion. Um, when you go to comparative religion to find truth, you're not um, trying to find Comparative religion is a bad place to try to find what religion is true and what religion is false. Comparative religion is a great place to find what questions do we face as people and how do different people answer this question and what do different faith structures have to say about these questions. Now from there, you can start to explore and come to truth. Um, so I, But I think that when we look to comparative religion for anything more than what's the bigger story of human history here? What's the bigger story of our cultures? When you come to the Bible for how was the world created as a science book or, um, yeah. Which is not a question that the authors ever intended to answer. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Nor did they, nor do ancient people understand history. Come on, the modern world we understand history very differently than the people who came before us. And I think our understanding of history is vastly inferior. History is not just a collection of facts. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, even y- you look at, at, at the names that are used, right? Like Adam. Which dirt boy. Is, yeah. Yep. Dirt, dirt man, dirt boy, clay, right? Like yeah. Um, you know, Eve, mm-hmm. life, mm-hmm. Abraham, big father, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like we are, um, these are, these are names that tell you what they are, right? Like, it, it's not like, oh yeah, uh, there was this, uh, this guy named Caleb, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which strangely enough is the Hebrew word for dog, so... You know, there may have been. <laughs> Sorry. <coughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, this is a modern thing, too. Like, we select names either based on our family or how those names sound to us. Mm-hmm. And we neglect the deeper meaning of a name. Like, I love the meaning of my daughter's names. I also like how they sound. But uh, I wasn't going to pick. I love, I love how the name, isn't it Naomi. I love how that name sounds, but doesn't that mean bitter? Isn't am I thinking correctly? Uh, Mara. Mara is okay. bitter because Naomi said, "Call me Mara." Call me Mara. Right. Yes. Thank you. Um, but I also love the name Mara. Um, we, yeah, I, we think we're so much better than the ancient people, and I think the ancient people had a much deeper understanding of the world and of human nature than we with our scientific method, which I am not against. Love me some science. Love me the scientific method. Thankful for it. 
but it just doesn't uncover all of reality for us. It's answering two different questions, yep. right? Like, you know, the the scientific method answers the how question. Mm-hmm. It can't answer the why question. Right. Likewise, religion is completely disinterested in the how question. But does a whole lot to talk about the why. Yes. Uh, Trinity students. And when I say Trinity students, for those who are listening, I mean uh, 7th through 12th graders. We are going to look at faith and science over the summer. I'm very excited about it. Um, But uh, we won't be taking a trip to the Creation Museum. Because... uh, that that's that's an adventure in missing the point of scripture. Yeah, yeah. So back to this uh, question of Mara, <laughs> um, when uh, when John Favreau finally uh, unseats Kathleen Kennedy as head of Lucasfilm, and we get Sebastian Stan giving us a uh, Luke Skywalker series. Amen. Amen. Do so be it. Do, I mean, you know, we can only hope, right? Um, do we see Mara Jade make an appearance? And if so, who plays her? Mm. Mm. I, this is not something I can entertain well without on, like on the spot. I am not as big of a Star Wars geek as the rest of my family. As she sits there in her Star Wars 1977 t-shirt. Hey, in Star Star Wars 1977, there was one film, man. There was one film. The one film. And it's a good film. Especially in comparison to uh, the prequels and the most recent Barfy story. In comparison to the sequels, the prequels are like Citizen Kane. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely. Like I Yeah. Yeah, it's painful. Yeah. You know, like here's the other thing we don't do well right now. Like we don't let good stories just end. We don't like endings. Like sometimes the best story just needs to be told and the character needs to die, and that's okay because that's how life is. Not Jesus, of course, but anyway. Yeah, so speaking of uh, sequels, have you seen Coming to America 2 yet? I I have not. Do you know how long it's been since I've seen Coming to America? Decades. Hmm. So, it's, um, it's not as good as the original. Sure. But I mean, the original, it's, you know, it's a... Like, there's a reason why on some cable network, every single minute of every single day, you can find Coming to America. <laughs> it, it is a, it's a masterpiece. Um, and this one, it's good. Like, it, it's, it's probably the funniest money movie of the year. Excellent. Um, but I mean, it's, uh, uh, and I will, my goodness, if Wesley Snipes doesn't win the Academy Award for Best Actor in Supporting Role, then we should just 
burn down the academy. You know what? He was so good as General Izzy. It was <laughs> incredible. They're if, not going to take that movie seriously. Well, you know what? I don't take the Academy seriously. I stopped Those cats gave Harvey Weinstein 50 of their little golden men. Like, So the year the Academy lost me was the year... Now, okay, let it be known. I love Denzel Washington. That man can act, and he is so easy on the eyes. He is a handsome fella. And his son, also a good actor and a handsome fella. Um, the year that Training Day and A Beautiful Mind were up, Russell Crowe and Denzel Washington for Best Actor. I don't know if you saw these movies. A Beautiful Mind, uh, I, it was incredible. And I'm not saying Training Day was bad, but if you're putting those two movies up against each other, there is no way that Denzel's performance in Training Day was stronger than Russell Crowe's performance in A Beautiful Mind. Well, you know the backstory there, right? No, I don't know a backstory. So the year before, Denzel Washington should have won Best Actor for The Hurricane. Okay, and what was the movie he was... Okay, Bob Dylan song. Here comes the story of the hurricane. The man the authorities came to blame. Okay. But what or was murder that he never done. Oh, yeah, so the hurricane, it's a story of a boxer. He's uh, back in New Jersey in the 60s. Mm-hmm. There is a murder. Mm-hmm. Um, the only witness at the scene says, yeah, two African-American guys in a black car drove away. So the cops pulled over the first black car. They could find the two African-American guys. Yeah, yeah. Quick trial. Yeah. The guy goes to prison. Um and, you know, like, everyone knew for decades that he probably didn't do it. Like, the evidence was flimsy. You know, you have Bob Dylan writing songs about it. Like, it's... But eventually, you know, genetic uh, evidence gets to the point where it's like, oh, yeah, it clearly wasn't him. Like, yeah. let him go. Um, and this happened, like, when I was a kid. Like, I remember, like, watching Good Morning America America, and this guy being on and, like, talking about his book. It's Then um, the movie's loosely based on the book okay but okay so what was the competition for denzel that year he blew i i don't even remember like he was clearly robbed and in the the story goes that basically the academy was afraid of the backlash from the families who you know had the victims back in the 60s because it's an unsolved crime they still thought it was him you know they're like we aren't going to celebrate this person who, even though all the evidence points to they aren't guilty, like, yeah, it's it's convoluted, it's a mess. Why but can't it just be about felt acting? Like they had because it's Hollywood, Ugh. Serena. Ugh. None of it's about acting. Um, so yeah, so it was a uh, it was a makeup call, if you will. That's too bad because Russell Crowe's performance in A Beautiful Mind was amazing. And again, I love Denzel. I think he is the bomb. Like, that man, man. Okay, so maybe I put some people on a pedestal. But he also seems like he might be a good person, right? Like, he's not in the news for nonsense like Russell Crowe was. I mean, he he did 
uh, without fanfare, pay uh, Chadwick Boseman's, Boseman's way to uh, uh, Oxford's uh, master's in acting school. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I get the feeling he's a, he's a good dude. Uh, so I'm not saying that he's not deserving of an award. I think he is. Just not for those movies. Like, not, like when you put those movies up against you. And so that was the year. That was the year that I was like, this is nonsense. Although then the Academy did does have some redemption for me when um, The Hurt Locker was up against Avatar for movie of the year. And Hurt Locker took it. And I may have gloated to my friends because that was the one I was rooting for. You know, here's the thing. Awards say much more about the givers of the awards than they do about the recipients. It's true. It's true. It's true. Because you know what James Cameron says to the Academy? <laughs> I don't care. He says, well, I made a billion dollars yeah, yeah, personally. Exactly. Personally, I made a billion dollars exactly. with Avatar. Like the studio made another, you yeah. know, three billion on top of it. So, yeah, you can have your <laughs> stupid little naked gold man statue. I'm going to go buy an island. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, but and but like here's the thing. Like I I recognize Avatar was a uh, a feat of technology that was uh, without precedent. The world James Cameron created was absolutely beautiful, but the story just wasn't as good as who as the story of Hurt Locker. While Hurt Locker was so off the charts unreal, like Well, the problem with Avatar is that I had already seen that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Pocahontas. Ferngolly. <laughs> right. Right? Like right. it he retold Ferngolly. Yeah. With a half a billion dollar budget. Yeah. And I can't believe we're getting Avatar 2 now. I think they'll use the papyrus again. I was just thinking, I'm like, James Cameron, please don't use papyrus again. No, he will. He will. <laughs> like, I, I think Out he of spite. used I think he used papyrus on purpose just to just to say, look, I'm not paying for a new font. I'm gonna make a billion dollars anyway, <laughs> and you're gonna like it. You're gonna like it. Yeah, Watch me right. raise the bar. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate the art behind that movie. I, it just, the story was not compelling to me. Uh, but anyway. Well, it was compelling in 1992 when it came out as Ferngully. Right, 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 right. And Pocahontas. Pocahontas was 95, though. Anyway. Pocahontas is unwatchable. Like... It, it, it is probably the weakest of the Disney movies from my childhood. Yeah, yeah. Like the the big ones, right? I mean, they make they made all sorts of like direct. Oh, videos oh stuff, my right? gosh! Oh, they did. It but was like, terrible. But like, like there was Aladdin and The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. And then Pocahontas. And Pocahontas. I mean, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh was, my god! I hated that movie. Was pretty lame too. Oh, it was awful. Uh, oh, it was awful. Hercules had all mm. the makings of a movie that should have been great, but just fell a little flat. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, that's that's a thing. Like, you know, you have your uh, plastic case VHSs stacked up, and it's like, okay, do you want Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, uh, Lion King? They're just better stories. 
they're just better stories. Music's better. And there's, I mean, there are all sorts of, of stories. At in the end of that, you get Pixar coming out with Toy Story. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's just... Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. There are all sorts of stories from Native American uh, history and mythology that are better stories than freaking Pocahontas. I'm not sure why Disney latched onto that. They're doing a better job now, right? But anyway. I mean, a Sacagawea story would have been Oh, my gosh. It would have been great. There's a woman for you. Show those white men. So um, (laughs) did you – there was a – what was the name of that movie? It was – it was – it was a Lewis and Clark parody with um, Matthew Perry. Nope. And – um, Chris Farley. Nope, didn't and, see it. You know they basically retold the Lewis and Clark story with these, you know, people who had similar names. And like the joke was that oh, there's Lewis and Clark again. Oh, there's Lewis and Clark again. They're following us. Lewis and Clark are following us. Wow. No, I. And I basically, they that. like these guys just never made it back east. So, <laughs> like wow. Lewis and Clark. So they they all went west. Lewis and Clark made it back east. Yeah. But. I don't know. I don't remember much of much of the movie. I just it's probably okay. Hey, thanks for taking part of the second pot podcast. Make sure you stay caffeinated and stay in love with Jesus, and we will see you later. Farewell. Put a second pot on. We're gonna learn what's going on. Before.